Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler, and for today's episode, we have a very special interview with Dr. Gabrielle Fundero. Dr. Fundero is an expert in gut health, so while we had her attention, we asked her a ton of questions about what gut health is, uh, dietary fiber intake, artificial sweeteners, prebiotic and probiotic supplements, and much, much more. As always, thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast, and we hope you enjoy the interview. So, um, obviously, we, we reached out to talk to you, um, and as everyone in fitness knows, you've got a specialization specifically pertaining to gut health, but for anyone who's not aware of your background, do you mind giving us a little, uh, a little profile of who you are and what your background is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, Dr. Gabrielle Fondero, uh, my PhD is uh, from the Department of Human Nutrition, Foods, and Exercise at Virginia Tech. And I was actually studying in a skeletal muscle physiology and biochemistry lab. And as it turns out, um, sort of a, a series of serendipitous events that seemed kind of unlucky at the time, but have turned out fairly well, um, led me to study uh, the interactions between the microbiome and peripheral metabolism, and specifically looking at the potential for probiotic supplementation to be protective against some of the deleterious effects of high-fat feeding in skeletal muscle metabolism. And so I worked with rodents. There was also a um, subsequent study in humans. Uh, spoiler alert, probiotics uh, are not really that helpful. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, that was really the only question. So I guess we, I mean, we can really <laughs> kind of pack it in, but thanks for coming by. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, good. You know, got it all done in five minutes. So awesome. uh, thanks thanks for the for the listeners and everything. Yeah, yeah, we try to be efficient. And so now, now mm-hmm. most, if not all of your work you're doing with Renaissance periodization, is that right? Um, yeah, I would say a majority. Uh, I also have my own kind of little side biz um, that I do actual video coaching and consultations um, under Vitamin PhD Nutrition, and that's for uh, folks who, who are, I would say, sort of a, a niche uh, group. Whereas with RP, I'm doing email coaching um, and speaking to folks who are, you know, largely Gen Pop, anywhere from recreational exercisers to competitive athletes. Um, plenty of individuals who want to learn for, you know, their own coaching um, or those who are in the medical field. And then the people that I work with um, one-on-one through VPHD, those folks generally have some form of gastrointestinal distress or discomfort um, and or are interested in more sort of non-macro, non-tracking, long-term weight management approaches. And so what I found is that um, quite often individuals who have some, you know, GI issues, not necessarily that it has to be a disease state, but um, it's often concurrent with sort of um, uh, restrictive eating patterns. And so they may have gotten something like a food sensitivity test because they have GI issues and now they're not sure what they can eat or not. And so I work with them to help educate them and and help them kind of regain control of of their diet and their GI symptoms. And, um, so that's, that's my maybe 25% of what I do. And, And then the other 75 is with RP. Awesome. And so you've got the academic background, you've got the coaching going on, and you also, you've also competed yourself as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't make any claims about being like a super competitor or anything or any type of athlete. I usually just kind of dabble for a while and see what I like. 
Um, so I have dabbled in physique. I did a, a physique competition in 2015, um, some jujitsu, uh, quite a bit of trail running back when I was more of a, an endurance exerciser and, uh, in recent years shifted to powerlifting. So I did, oh, I would say like five meets and, you know, about over a little over a year, uh, which is a lot, but I kind of just wanted to, you know, see what it was about and have fun with it. And, um, yeah, so that's most recent dabbling has been in, in that. Awesome. Now you were talking about your coaching and you said a lot of the clients you work with, uh, have many of them have some kind of issue related to gut health and Mm -hmm. gut health is becoming a bit of a buzzword in the evidence-based fitness community. You hear a lot of people talking about it and because of your expertise, I've got a whole list of questions for you, but (laughs) the first question is kind of a vague one, but what exactly Mm -hmm. is gut health? We, We see a lot of people talk about it, but it's rarely like really defined, I think. I was hoping you were going to be able to tell me that because this is the first and best fitness podcast and um, there's actually no definition for gut health. So gosh, I guess I should probably leave now because that's the only, that's why I was here. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so gut health is one of those kind of big buzzword marketing terms and, um, and that is actually, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but that's something that I point out that we don't have one profile of a healthy gut in terms of the microbes that are present. We do, we're starting to identify sort of a core uh, human microbiota. So that means a group of microbes that seem to be uh, present in all human gastrointestinal tracts. So we have these these guys in common. We have co-evolved with them. Sometimes people call them old friends um, or or these sort of commensal bacteria that are neither you know necessarily positive or negative. They just happen to be sort of human specific. So we have an idea that those guys should probably be present. And we can also look at sort of the relative abundance of uh, microbes that would be considered to be pathogenic or disease-causing versus those that are considered to be beneficial or at least neutral. And ideally, we have a, a larger relative abundance of those that are beneficial or neutral. Um, but we haven't been able to establish a causative link between even the pathogenic strains and various diseases with which they might be associated. So when we sequence the microbiomes of individuals around the world, we find that all of the healthy controls uh, may cluster together by region, but we don't see as much clustering comparing region to region. So for example, individuals in Korea, uh, healthy controls will look different from the healthy controls that are in the U.S., And the largest variability that we see, the greatest explanation for why two people might look different in terms of microbial profile, um, it's like a fingerprint. It's just inter-individual variability. So when we're looking at the microbiome, we can't really say that there's just one healthy profile. Of course, when we look at sort of the anatomy and the physiology of the gut, we can say that gut health would be sort of the, maybe the, the absence of disease or the absence uh, of a pathology. And that's a little bit easier to define. Um, so if someone is, you know, free of an inflammatory bowel disease and, you know, they don't have any sort of un- uncomfortable GI symptoms, that would be quote unquote good gut health. But some of the foods that we would eat that would be great for the microbiota uh, are highly fermentable, and that can cause things like gas and bloating and GI distress. And so 
that means there's a disconnect between what could be considered a healthy or functional microbiome or microbiota versus uh, what is you know perceived by humans to be uh, healthy. So yeah, it's it's just one of those kind of buzzwords that can mean a lot of different things, and so people can use it in various ways. Yeah, so I, I feel like it sounds like it's one of those things that the definition can be hard to pin down to try to get a universal mm -hmm. definition, but I would imagine it's not that nebulous for people that come to you for help because they say, I've got a gut issue because I have symptoms. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, you kind of view it functionally as an absence of symptoms, I guess. Yeah, to some extent. And I think also um, expectations about what, what are what is actual symptomology versus, you know, what is just, hey, individuals will sometimes experience gas and bloating and some distension because some foods are highly fermentable and we are filled with a couple pounds of uh, living organisms that are producing gas uh, and, and other substances as they're fermenting. So I think some of that is just about education and then also, um, you know, personal thresholds for what is a... a, a an invasive level of gas and bloating and distension. So it might not be that they actually have the, the presence of a disease, but you know, maybe poor gut health to them is just that they feel bloated and they don't have comfortable bowel movements. And then that's something that can be addressed, even though they're, it's not necessarily that there's anything wrong with their gut or with the microbiome. And then it's just uh, a dietary intervention, which is pretty often the case. Yeah, and I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here. So if I'm wrong, please, please do feel free to correct me. But <laughs> it also seems as if there's a, a pretty significant, um, when it comes to gut symptomology, a pretty significant psychosomatic influence as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that actually does appear to be the case that um, stress management is actually one really effective intervention for the symptoms of uh, irritable bowel syndrome, especially. So if individuals have chronic diarrhea or chronic constipation and um, other potential diseases have been ruled out, quite often they'll receive a, a diagnosis of IBS. And um, some of the really effective interventions are things like mindfulness and yoga and cognitive behavioral therapy, and that sometimes these can be, you know, uh, more effective than traditional interventions like a pharmaceutical. Uh, so it's, you know, mind, I think mindset um, probably plays a significant role uh, because it can modify how we process stress and you know stress is going to be a constant for all of us um, but there is some rodent data illustrating that uh, chronically elevated cortisol um, as induced by uh, a stressful environment like a, a really aggressive cage mate can actually cause some changes um, to the microbiota. Now, do we know the clinical outcomes of that? No, we can't say that that is then a, a cause, a causative factor in developing IBS, um, but just that it's some evidence that the cortisol may be impacting the gut in some way. Um, and people will often see uh, increases in symptoms when they're under a great deal of stress. So you picked quite an area to specialize in because it sounds like you pretty much have your hands full whenever you have kind of a, a new issue that comes up. It could be so multifaceted. Um, mm -hmm. So I have some questions about how certain things affect the gut microbiome. But before we get there, you talked a little bit about how we can't necessarily say here is the template for, you know, the perfect human microbiome. But I have mm -hmm. seen some literature breaking it down into what they call enterotypes. Ah, uh, yep. But I have also seen literature pushing back 
against some of the enterotype mm -hmm. classification. So these enterotypes, are these legitimate ways to classify the gut microbiome? And if so, what are they? Um, so enterotypes are kind of like uh, somatotypes. So, you know, when people say, um, I, I'm an endomorph, mesomorph, ectomorph, um, that there are predominant taxa that have specific uh, sort of behaviors or uh, have specific preferences for nutrients in the diet. And so early research started to characterize these as being more Prevotella dominant, uh, more Bacteroides dominant, um, and uh, there are a couple other sort of uh, sub-classifications as well, looking into more Roseberia. Um, and so they, the idea was that if an individual's diet is higher in complex carbohydrates, they'll be more Prevotella dominant. If it's higher in animal proteins, it's going to be more Bacteroides dominant. Now, part of the reason that we're seeing some pushback there is that we aren't actually seeing these uh, very consistently in the literature. So for example, looking at the some of the dietary extremes, like in vegans. So with vegans, obviously they're not uh, ingesting any animal products and their diets are generally going to be high in complex carbohydrates. But in some cases, the microbiomes of vegans actually have elevated levels of bacteroides compared to um, omnivorous controls. So it's just that I think what happens is what it, it's, it's impacted by the uh, level of resolution with which we're sequencing the gut. So how far down are we actually able to uh, look into these taxonomic groups. The very early classifications, I think the first example of enterotypes would be comparing um, the Formicutes versus the Bacteroidetes groups. Now that's like comparing vertebrates versus invertebrates, but early on there was this theory that Formicutes dominant individuals would be more prone to obesity um, because many of those Formicutes, uh, they, they just found that it as it happened back then, uh, many people with obesity seem to have higher levels of Formicutes. But there are plenty of beneficial groups of bacteria within that um, phyla like lactobacilli. So we can't say that, you know, one group is necessarily going to be obesogenic or um, predispose us to being lean. It's just that that was, uh, because it's such a kind of a blurry resolution, it's easy to group uh, bacteria in that way, that that's something that started to emerge. But we have to realize that the effects of these bacteria are not just species-specific, but even subspecies-specific. And in most cases, we're just not looking with that level of resolution, with that level of specificity, when we're sequencing um, microbiomes. And we're also looking at fecal data in most cases versus the, the samples that would be, uh, you know, all along the gastrointestinal tract and looking at things like uh, lumen versus mucus. So I think we were working with sort of the patterns that were emerging based on the technology that we were using then and, that, and now as technology is improving and we're getting more large-scale trials, we're able to see that those things are not emerging consistently enough for us to be able to, I think, characterize enterotypes um, with any level of certainty. Perfect. So yeah, I mean, this, this whole landscape of research um, I was talking about on the podcast the other day 
you know, it, it, there's so much unresolved within the literature mm-hmm. still in terms of how we do useful groupings and categorizations that are actually robust yeah. enough to, to feel good about. Um, exactly. But yeah, so at this point, I feel like we've got a good primer on gut health and the microbiome. Now I want to ask you about certain things that we can do that may or may not affect our gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I hear very consistently is that fiber intake is a huge determinant uh, of what our microbiome looks like. Is, is that true to say? I would agree with that. With the looking at it in terms of sort of a hierarchy, though, so in terms of the context or back, like against what backdrop are we comparing fiber intake? Um, so again, it comes down to that issue of resolution. So you can kind of think of it as like if we're looking down um, from a helicopter onto a forest uh, below and we can see the tops of the trees and we might be able to identify that um, there are a few different types of trees present, but we might not, we might not be able to see all of the other organisms that are beneath the trees. And even if we get down a little bit closer, we might be able to see some shapes and say, oh, okay, I can see that there are deer down there, but which species of deer are there? And so when we're looking at the effects of fiber on the gut, if we're zoomed out really far and we're comparing that against the backdrop of just inter-individual variability, it's going to be a really small effect, even though it will have a large effect on some specific taxa or some specific groups of microbes as a whole, our, our current longitudinal data is showing, even comparing dietary extremes, that anywhere from about 60 to 80% of the microbes present stay pretty much unchanged for most of our lives. So while we can say that, yes, fiber probably has a pretty significant impact um, in, you know, compared to something like um, a supplement, uh, overall, the impact might still be a little bit smaller than we would hope. Um, But that being said, you know, we can look at the absence of fiber, again, sort of a dietary extreme. um, And this is something that's been uh, repeated in, in rodents, at least. If we feed a diet that is completely devoid of fiber, and or uh, low in polysaccharides in general, so other types of carbohydrate, that we actually see some changes in the microbiome that may uh, be associated with a loss of the uh, protective mucus layer covering, covering the intestinal cells. Now that can certainly be regarded as a negative outcome with probably some pretty significant clinical implications. Um, and then we also can look at, you know, in humans, fiber supplementation does seem to have some benefits in terms of uh, easing constipation, depending on the type of fiber, um, and also seems to play a role in things like appetite regulation and um, uh, insulin sensitivity. So there are potentially some positive outcomes for fiber supplementation. Does that mean that the changes in the microbiome are causative? We don't know that yet. It could be that those changes are happening concurrently, but one is not causing the other. Okay. Now the, the other end of this, or the other, um, kind of food intake question that I see a lot, uh, pertains to meat. So you, you had talked previously Mm -hmm. about vegan diets, um, and how that might affect the microbiome. So do, it sounds like fiber, there's some association there, but maybe not as big as people have hyped it up to be. What about mm-hmm. meat? Is, there, is, it, is meat intake associated with any particularly good or bad effects on the microbiome? 
Um, I think this depends also on, you know, if, if we're looking at just kind of a prudent diet, because a lot of the studies thus far that have been looking at dietary effects on the microbiome are using dietary extremes. So we're comparing um, vegans to omnivores or even vegans to an all um, meat and cheese diet. So this was something that was done several years ago. They put um, for five days, they had two groups. One was a plant-based diet. One was a, a, an animal-based meat and cheese diet. Um, now, the folks that's transitioned to the plant-based diet, it probably wasn't too terribly different from their baseline diet, so they really didn't see any meaningful changes uh, in the microbiome, whereas individuals who shifted to the meat and cheese diet saw some significant changes from baseline. Um, once they returned to their previous diet, then their microbiomes um, bounced back to, to their previous states as well. So what we often see um, is in we, we do see uh, fairly consistently uh, increases in bacteroides that doesn't necessarily mean that they are only associated with um, more meat more animal proteins but they seem to be a pretty dynamic taxa so they can adapt to changes in nutrient availability whereas uh, bifidobacteria seem to be a little bit more they're, they're a bit finicky you know a little bit needy of um, fermentable carbohydrates so when we reduce the levels of fermentable carbohydrates in the diet like if we're in a, a low FODMAP diet or a gluten-free diet then we do see um, fairly consistently reductions in levels of bifidobacteria. So what sometimes happens is that when we're comparing diets and we, and we you know, compare a higher protein to a lower protein diet, um, that it's not just necessarily the protein that's changing or, you know, if we're looking at just, you know, cross-sectional, like looking at two groups that have always eaten this type of, of diet, um, that we also have to keep in mind that the other macronutrient levels will change as well. So there are some, uh, there's some studies that have shown with regression, regression analyses that uh, increased protein intake may, might lead to reduced uh, microbial diversity, and then others that have shown that it's associated with increased microbial diversity. But again, that's just looking at protein. We don't know what the sources of the protein might actually be. There have there's one um, there's a, a recent analysis that came out looking at you know comparing vegans versus vegetarians versus omnivores and they actually noted that in vegans who sometimes ate um, red meat <laughs> which I thought was really funny um, they had similar you know positive health outcomes to people who are strict vegan so does you know is is including meat in any way problematic no but I would venture to uh, guess that if we have a diet that is only animal meat, that could be problematic, not necessarily just because of the meat, but because of the lack of, of fiber and microbe accessible carbohydrates. Yeah. And so when you say an increase in microbial diversity, is it safe to assume that that's a generally favorable outcome? Uh, maybe. <laughs> so this is another cont area. Contextually, that, uh, it was framed that way, but uh, I, I, I want to make sure it's always it's not, yeah, so it's not always going to be a good thing. And this is another, so um, there have been a couple interesting sort of, um, I think, op-ed pieces that have come out looking at diversity and, uh, so the term diversity and the term dysbiosis and, you know, what they actually mean and are they always good? So diversity just is looking at the richness and evenness of species. So we're looking at how many species are present and then what are the relative distributions of those species? Now, you could potentially have uh, a change in diversity 
um, an increase in diversity and have an increase in pathogenic strains of bacteria. So that's not necessarily going to be a good thing. Um, we have increased diversity there because of, you know, increased numbers of, of species that we can measure and, uh, you know, perhaps changes in, in relative abundance. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good change or a bad change. It's just a change in the number and or relative abundance of species between uh, two samples. Yeah, that, that's the most frustrating part of working through some of this literature <laughs> as a non-expert in this specific niche is that you'll see these studies that say like, here's a thing that seemed to have a change and you're like, good or bad and they're like well it's different <laughs> and i'm like yeah i can see yeah, that exactly <laughs> yeah and it, it's because these microbes their behavior um really is context dependent so uh they might not even express any virulence factors there might be you know the presence of pathogenic bacteria uh, might not be a problem at all and 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 you know we expect to see them in the gut we expect to see uh, strains that could cause disease. We just need the, them to be at low enough numbers that when they're doing something called quorum sensing, they're sort of put, sending out a census to see how many of themselves are out there, that it's low enough that they don't decide to express virulence factors. They don't decide to act in a pathogenic way. They just sort of hang out and, you know, the other commensal or beneficial bacteria are keeping them in check. And so overall, we're disease-free, even though they might actually be present. Um, and so when we see a change in diversity, if we do see that, you know, their numbers are increasing, that could potentially lead to uh, pathogenicity that, you know, wasn't so much of a concern before. And then in other cases, uh, we can have bacteria that, may, uh, because they're interacting with each other, they could uh, be collaborating. So there could be like a, a symbiotic effect. Um, they could be competing. And so they may cause issues in one individual and not in another, depending on the backdrop of the other microbes that are present as well. And there was one, I can't remember um, the name of the bacteria now, but I have it posted somewhere on my Instagram. Um, but it was like within a couple days, they had uh, two different, I think it was a methanogen, they had two different papers published on this same guy. And it was like, one was, woohoo, he's helping protect us against disease. And the other one was like, oh, he's increasing virulence factors of this other one. And it was just like, you, what's that saying from Batman? You um, uh, live long enough, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. That's kind of what happens. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong here. My, my <laughs> kind of mid question summary or mid interview summary here. Uh -huh. It seems good to have at least some fiber in the diet for the gut microbiome. Yes. And you can probably mm -hmm. make it work whether you're on uh, a strictly plant-based or omnivorous diet. Do those sound fair? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Beautiful. Okay. So now another thing that I've seen in the literature linked to the microbiome, artificial sweeteners. What do we know mm -hmm. about artificial sweeteners and the microbiome? Not as much as the internet thinks that we know, actually. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, Shots fired. Shots fired. <laughs> no. <laughs> let's, let's, so, let's get World Star in here. Yeah. Um, Instagram thinks that, the, that artificial sweeteners will just kill your entire microbiome. Um, and what the data actually shows is that, A, we actually have relatively few human studies looking at artificial sweeteners and the microbiome. 
Um, of those, we have some that are of relatively low participant number. Um, and in one case, that the one people like to point out all the time, we actually didn't have a, a control group for some of the data that is most ooh, compelling. Um, so I'll start with the, the one that people are shocked to hear, but we actually have, uh, I, I want to say, two or three human trials illustrating that aspartame does not seem to have any effect at all either on the microbiota or the function of the gut. So it doesn't cause any changes in, in the production of gut hormones and the bacteria are completely unfazed and doesn't have any uh, clinical outcomes. So aspartame is, you know, if you want to go for the one that we have pretty, you know, at, at least we have some confirmatory trials that's showing it's not doing anything. Um, now the others that, you know, we either have uh, still emerging data or some data that might want, you know, that we might want to be considerate of um, looking into saccharin and sucralose. These do seem to interact uh, with them, with the microbiota to some extent um, or impact it in some way. And so what's kind of required there is that, you know, the, this, whatever we're ingesting, it has to, you know, ideally reach the large intestine uh, where the majority of the microbiota are present and then also interact with them in some way. And if it's something that's like just an inert chemical that they don't want anything to do with and it can't influence them, then we don't really have to worry about it. Now, the ones that we've seen may have some effect would be saccharin and sucralose, um, still minimal in humans. And that's at really uh, high levels of intake, so upwards of the ADI, so the acceptable daily intake, which is something like uh, in a 150-pound person, anywhere from about 13 to 17 cans of soda a day or 30-plus packets in a day. So if you're ingesting at that level, then it's something to consider. Obviously, the dose is what you know we really need to keep that in mind. So second, we have to look at you know how many people are actually going to be affected. When the one study that really uh, illustrated that there's um, – a potential for uh, impact to the microbiome and insulin sensitivity, what they really did was they took a subset of the participants, there was about seven participants whose microbiome changed with ingestion of saccharin. And from there, they, they took some fecal samples and uh, provided them to mice. So they took fecal samples from the humans, implanted them into mice, and they saw that the mice uh, illustrated some uh, insulin resistance. And so from there, they determined that the changes to the microbiome could then have led to uh, insulin resistance. But again, when we're looking at that, you know, it is are, are seven individuals really enough for us to be able to extrapolate that to all humans? And then from there, looking at a subset um, of those individuals species in rodent models, is that something that we can safely extrapolate to humans? I would say, you know, probably not. I am pretty conservative uh, on what we can apply to humans. Uh, and then, you know, looking at the actual health outcomes when we are replacing something like a sugar-sweetened beverage with a non-nutritive beverage, that does have really clear uh, positive health outcomes. 
So when we're, you know, concerned about the minutia of artificial sweeteners on the gut, well, we just don't have the data to be to really support the opinion that it's going to kill the microbiome. I think people are probably extrapolating from cell culture data. So if you want to see a huge magnitude uh, of effect on anything, put it on cells. Bunches of them will die. Or if you want to, you know, do, do it in rodents. And so there's plenty of rodent data illustrating that artificial sweeteners can have some deleterious effects, but it's at super physiological doses. So there's just no way that we as humans would be able to ingest that level of artificial sweetener. Now, when we're looking at um, the the non-nutritive, um, not artificial, but sugar alcohols, those do seem to have pretty significant effects on the gut, but in a more positive way because they're prebiotic. Now, people will usually feel bloated and gassy because they're highly fermentable except for erythritol. Um, but, you know, if you want to have something that's super prebiotic, well, there you go, sugar alcohols. Have you seen the absolutely legendary Amazon review for sugar-free gummy bears? <laughs> yes. Okay, that that makes me happy. Oh, for, yeah. for everyone else listening to this, just Google Amazon review sugar-free gummy bears. It is one of the best pieces of content on the entire internet. Oh, just man. insofar as it relates yeah, they, to consuming oh. too high of levels of sugar alcohols. Oh yeah, that's like if you if you don't want to go for a traditional colonoscopy prep and you want to have a tasty <laughs> snack instead, pound a sugar-free gummy bears. That is all you need. Literally, like, nothing will touch the sides. You will elevate above the toilet seat. And then, like, there you go. That's your that's your New Year's resolution colon cleanse detox right oh. there. Oh, man. It was ridiculous, though. Because what wasn't it like a five-pound bag of sugar-free gummy bears? And the person was oh, like, first of all, I have to make sure you guys know this. Don't eat them all in one sitting. It's like, who the fuck eats five pounds of sugar-free gummy bears in one sitting? I found your problem. Seriously. You know, the dose, again, is is relevant there. Like, you could probably deal with... But I don't know. You know what the funny thing is? Like, one of the things that I look for, like, a carefully in products is chicory root fiber or inulin. It's There's nothing toxic about it except your farts after you eat it. Like, it, is, it causes the absolute worst gas. And people are like, oh, it's a fiber. It's natural. It's so good for you. And I'm like... Good luck with that. Um, the abdominal pain you're about to experience is probably not your appendix. It's probably just horrible gas. Yeah. So the, the things you don't want to like binge eat, if you're like, you know what? I want to binge eat responsibly. And you're thinking like those, those two <laughs> ingredients that Gabrielle just mentioned or like sugar-free gummy bears, sugar-free chocolate. These are things that should oh. not be binge eaten. No, no, absolutely not. And it's not like the inulin, it does not take much. Like there are some uh, well-known vegan cookies on the market and they have changed their recipe. I used to be able to eat these. I would actually eat them like before I was going to go lift or I'd bring them to meats and whatnot because they were delicious and settled well and um, were, you know, relatively low enough in fat, high in carbs. They had plenty of, you know, sugar, a little bit of protein. Um, but yeah, I had half of one a few months ago and I was like, am I dying? Is this the end of me? Because I didn't know that they had added chicory root to their ingredients and it does not take much. It really doesn't take much of that or sorbitol. So if you see something like 
on the packaging, it's like excess consumption may have a laxative effect. By excess or excessive, they probably mean like maybe two pieces instead of one. I and mean, it's insane. Yeah, that stuff's dangerous. It, it kind of reminded me of uh, the reviews of Olestra from back in the day. What, wasn't oh, that the mm-hmm. like the non-digestible fat that they wanted to kind of be like the same thing as artificial sweeteners? Yeah, but the, the the I think the potato chips were like wow potato chips yes. like wow I think I just pooped my pants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it was exactly the same stuff. Like theoretically, it's I feel like that was one of the dumber things because the way it was marketed, it was like hey, there's this stuff that tastes like fat. It will give you the same mouthfeel as fat. It does all of the things you would want fat to do in your cooking, but it's not digestible, so you don't. You know, it's virtually no calories. So people saw that and they're like, oh, sweet. So if I want to binge on an entire family size bag of potato chips, ultimately, I'm just getting the starch from that. Like none of the fat that would otherwise come with it. But Mm -hmm. that's exactly not how someone would want to consume Olestra products, because if you're not digesting it, it's going to come out the other end. In massive quantities. Yes. <laughs> and so, yes. Uh, really good idea in theory, but I think Olestra products were pulled from the shelves after maybe a year tops just because consumers couldn't use them responsibly and would end up complaining like, oh, this made me shit like no other product I have ever come across. Mm-hmm. I-, I bet there's a chemist somewhere who uh, who is like an artist who just made their masterpiece like 200 years ahead of its time and it's like you idiots just can't appreciate my creation why would you possibly think you should eat the whole bag because like olestra that was the thing everybody ate way too much of it everyone's like whoever invented this is an idiot and it's just like i i'm pretty sure it's gone right like i haven't seen it in ages no same i mean i mean it is kind of a bad idea when you sit and think about it a little more though because like any significant amount of it would give people pretty significant GI symptoms and a lot of diarrhea. And so like, if you were, it it would be useful for saving the calories if you were only going to consume a little bit of fat. But if it's it's only going to be a little bit, unless you're like a bodybuilder deep in prep, it's probably not going to really negatively impact you. Like if you're replacing Mm -hmm. enough fat from your diet with Olestra to actually have a meaningful impact on total calories consumed, then it's going to destroy your toilet. So it's kind of like there's, it it didn't seem like there was any actual meaningful application for it. Because once you use enough for it to actually Mm -hmm. matter, you know, physique and total energy intake wise, like good luck to your bathroom. Yeah, it's, it's certainly not a feasible standalone weight loss intervention. Yeah. And sort of an interesting like social experiment too, because people were were aware of the risks and like they still <laughs> push the envelope. They still were like, well, let me see how much I can eat. Maybe I can handle half of a bag of potato chips. Like you're really willing to take that risk. Like that is hedonic eating at its finest. These chips taste so good. I am okay with potentially pooping myself. All right. So I think that's the fourth time we've talked about pooping our pants. So I'm going to bring things back toward <laughs> toward artificial sweeteners. Now, I had to look into this literature uh, the, for the December issue of Mass that's coming out soon. Um, there's a new study looking mm-hmm. at sucralose. I was really stunned yeah. when I found exactly what you were mentioning. There is very minimal human data pertaining to the effects of several artificial sweeteners 
on the gut microbiome, mm-hmm. especially uh, sucralose, yeah, yeah. The, the cupboard is very bare. Um, you know, the, like you mentioned, oh, there, yeah. there's plenty of, I wouldn't say plenty, but there's some stuff for aspartame, some for saccharin, mm-hmm. but sucralose, we need to get mm-hmm. to work. Uh, we, we need to start doing those studies. Yeah. And, you know, I think because sucralose is, is um, molecularly similar to sucrose, I am curious as to, you know, the potential magnitude of effect there, um, you know, if, if it could interact with the microbiota. I think, you know, potentially that might have the, the, the I don't know, it might, it might have the greatest potential is what I'm saying. Um, not to, you know, shit on sucralose or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what we have so far is really looking, we have a, a couple of rodent studies, but again, when we're looking at doses that are just inconceivable by human standards, it's not super helpful to us. Yeah. Now, when you were talking about sugar alcohols, you talked about how many of them are fermentable. Um, Mm -hmm. so that fermented foods is basically a whole class of foods that, that, uh, I would assume have pretty notable impacts on the gut microbiome as a whole. Is that right? You know, it's kind of funny. It's another, uh, kind of similar situation to the artificial sweeteners where we espouse all of these potential effects, but the human literature is really lacking. So what we have, uh, probably enough evidence now to say that uh, it probably doesn't have a huge impact would be looking at fermented dairy. Not to say that there's no impact, it's just that fermented dairy doesn't seem to be appreciably different from non-fermented dairy in terms of potential beneficial health outcomes. So things like reduced all-cause mortality, increased um, or Im- improved body composition, um, reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. So these are all great health outcomes, but it seems like you could get it if you have regular milk or if you have kefir, that the effect on the actual microbiome uh, is pretty insignificant and pretty minimal. It might affect just a couple taxa, or you might see slight enrichment in some of the strains of probiotic bacteria. That as a whole, when we're comparing that against thousands of species, what effect will we really see by changing like a couple subspecies, especially when we consider how stable the microbiome is as a whole? And there was actually just um, a, a, something of a position stand put out recently kind of stating this, saying that, you know, as a whole, the microbiome is actually really stable. And we don't know what the magnitude effect of effect is for a lot of these interventions and that it might actually be really hard to identify anything happening at all in a meaningful way or what the clinical outcomes are. So, you know, fermented dairy, oh, maybe. But then when we look at the effects of, um, you know, kombucha, there was sort of a tongue-in-cheek systematic review put out last year uh, with one study in it. And that's, that's, you know, I think the authors <laughs> knew, they knew what they were doing. They were like, haha, systematic review, here's one study, and it's actually not even a study. Um, it's just like an op-ed piece about the potentials for kombucha effects on, on, the, on the gut and on humans, which is, you know, even sort of a separate um, outcome. And then if we look at, you know, the other, other sources of fermented foods, so just not, not just kombucha, but if we're looking at, um, you know, fermented uh, vegetables like kimchi, um, sauerkraut is sometimes fermented, but people kind of confuse like pickled with fermented. So not all pickles are going to be, um, 
you know, a fermented food, they might be just pickled with vinegar, uh, um, or fermented, um, protein sources. So there are some fermented meats, um, fermented fruits, uh, grains. So at, overall, it seems like they, the, the, most the greatest benefit that we see is that during the process of fermentation almost always we're reducing the levels of those fermentable fibers or fermentable carbohydrates which makes those foods more digestible to us so we don't get as many gi symptoms of like gas and bloating when we eat them so that's nice and you know dairy that's one way that we can reduce the lactose content but in terms of meaningful change to the microbiome and then any clinical outcomes that might be a result of that, really there's pretty much nothing out there. So it's kind of, I find it a little bit funny that like there are people really supporting the ingestion of these fermented foods and even in place of probiotic supplementation. Um, now probiotic supplementation is one area that has shown there are some uh, there are some microbes that have quite a few confirmatory trials showing that they are effective for reducing symptoms of various disease states. So that's promising. And we know that we can you know get uh, we, we can get those probiotics ideally with, uh, a specific number of CFUs or colony forming units, but something that we're getting it from a food source, we have no idea how many uh, viable bacteria are actually in that food source, and really, you know, the with with certainty what strains are present and the effects of those bacteria are going to be strain specific. So it's a little bit of a, a gamble to just you know rely on a probiotic containing food to get your probiotics, in my opinion. Yeah, and that actually is the next thing I wanted to ask about after fermented foods is you see a lot of lay press articles talking about prebiotic and probiotic foods. Could you mm -hmm. give us a rundown of what, what the difference is and what some of those are? Yeah, so the prebiotic would be the food source for the microbes. And those are going to be, another word would be uh, microbe accessible carbohydrates. They are quite often fibers but not always. Um, so the the key for these to be considered um, prebiotic is that they would have to be able to feed microbes. That means that they have to get to the large intestine. So if it's a carbohydrate that we have the ability to digest and then absorb, that's really not going to be as uh, strong of a prebiotic as one that we can't digest. And so it will pass through to the large intestine where those bacteria can then ferment it and produce either gas or short chain fatty acids. Now, the probiotics are the actual microbes themselves that, when ingested, might confer some benefit to the host. Now, previous definitions specified that they had to be living. Um, that might not actually be the case. It may be that we could have um, non-living uh, microorganisms that may still have the potential to influence the microbiome in some way that confers a benefit to the host. And so like the spore forming um, probiotics are a thing now because they might, they don't necessarily have to be alive, but they um, produce spores that can then give rise to viable bacteria. Um, and then there's a new term postbiotics, which are products that are produced by bacteria that could then again, confer some benefit to the host. Interesting. So you talked a little bit about how certain probiotic supplements might be able to uh, induce some changes 
Um, what, mm-hmm. what about prebiotic and probiotic foods specifically? Are you more favorable? Do you have a more favorable view of supplements when, when it's, you know, a well-made supplement? Um, well, in terms of prebiotics, we really don't have to supplement with prebiotics because those fibers are going to be present in whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, um, even, you know, if you're, if you're lactose intolerant and you can't break down the lactose, that could be considered prebiotic also, but it's usually pretty unpleasant. So most people don't want to eat that if they can't, um, digest it and then, uh, you know, clear it out of the small intestine. Um, but those, you don't really, like I said, you don't have to supplement. If you eat a diet that is high in microbe carbohydrates, high in fiber, then you're getting the prebiotics that you need. And that's what we find is that in, in uh, groups of individuals who eat very high fiber diets and diets that are high in complex carbohydrates, they have a great abundance of microbial diversity. And those microbes are um, in, in niches that are very good at processing those carbohydrates. So they're, they're fermenters. Whereas the individuals who have less uh, uh, lower levels of fiber, lower levels of uh, carbohydrate in the diet, that they will see a comparatively reduced uh, levels of diversity. And that's even, you know, when we were looking at the, like the Hadza is one group, they might be eating 100 to 150 grams of fiber per day as compared to uh, individuals in the U.S. who average about 15 to 19 grams of fiber per day. So we can see some pretty appreciable differences between those two groups without any need for supplementation. It's just that their diets are very high in fiber. When we look at the the application of probiotics, I do think that it is probably more prudent to go for a uh, a supplement that has you know something like a the equivalent of a USP label, so US Pharmacopoeia, that's one that just tests for purity and, and potency. It's not anything about safety or efficacy. It's just that what's on the label is actually what you're getting. And, um, you know, that might be different in other parts of the world, but some way to determine, and it's difficult, but some way to determine that you are actually getting the number of CFUs that are on the label. Um, because while there's no single um, amount that we are are sure that you have to get in each day if you're going to be supplementing, it looks like it's anywhere from between uh, uh, one to five billion CFUs, one to two times a day, anywhere from one to you know many many weeks. Because we don't have like a system a systematic way that we administer these probiotics, uh, you know, to every. Uh, population across all studies. So the best we can do is just look at, okay, this seems to be effective, most effective at these doses for generally a longer duration of time. And then the strains that are used, their effects seem to be pretty specific to a specific disease state. So for example, S. boulardii is one that I have mentioned quite often because there's a great deal of evidence supporting its efficacy in reducing symptoms of antibiotic or travelers-associated uh, um, diarrhea. Um, one that seems to be super specific to pediatrics is uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. doesn't really seem to help with adult diarrhea, but it does seem to help with pediatric diarrhea. And so there are other strains that might be beneficial for um, reducing symptoms of IBS or IBD, but then they're not really helpful with antibiotic-associated diarrhea. 
So if we're doing something like just, you know, eating, just drinking kombucha and eating kimchi, we don't know that we're getting those specific strains of bacteria or that we're getting them at sufficient doses to actually um, cause some relief. So in that case, even though most of the time I'm very much food first, I do think that it's important that we, um, you know, utilize those well-supported probiotic supplements um, in the appropriate applications. I'm glad you mentioned antibiotic-associated diarrhea because that's kind of where I'd like to go next. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been talking about things that could possibly like increase the health and diversity of the microbiome. So shifting gears, one of the things that I've heard from a lot of sources, which I don't know how true or not true it is, is that taking antibiotics you know, for some sort of bacterial disease or infection mm -hmm. can just absolutely wreak havoc on the gut microbiome. So is that the case? Uh, and if it is the case, how long would that take to recover after a course of antibiotics? And what are some things that people could do to recover? Yeah, this is actually another area that it's hard to get, uh, where it's hard to get consistent data because there are so many different types of antibiotics and so many different populations um, and, you know, if someone's taking an antibiotic for something like a gastrointestinal infection, well, do we necessarily want them to return to their previous microbial uh, profile? Maybe not, because it might not have been great to start out with. Um, whereas if individuals are taking it, you know, for uh, a cold or um, there was a recent study looking at children in Malawi um, and they take uh, fairly long courses of antibiotics to help prevent infection. Um, and and uh, I, I want to say that it was um, uh, azithromycin. So in I've seen some studies that have shown that azithromycin doesn't really have much of an effect on the microbiome, um, you know, in otherwise healthy adults. Whereas something that's really strong like vancomycin will absolutely wreak havoc. That's made to knock out C. diff. So yeah, it's going to be a really gnarly antibiotic. So I think um, it's really going to come down to, you know, what if we do have an, something like an enterotype. So the initial, uh, so the baseline microbial profile will probably impact uh, how the type of effect that the antibiotic might have on the microbiome. And then what happens after we come off of the antibiotic? Well, that is also dependent upon your baseline uh, microbiome. Ideally, you have one that is fairly resilient, dynamic, and um, that is often associated with diversity as well. So you might bounce back really quickly. Um, if you're on you know, something that's a, a pretty weak, relatively speaking, antibiotic for a short period of time, but if you're on something strong for a long period of time, or even in these Malawian children, they're on azithromycin for a long period of time, then there are appreciable reductions in bacterial diversity. Again, what does that actually mean? We have to kind of look more at like the clinical outcomes. Um, well, yeah, so a person might end up with antibiotic-associated diarrhea. That could be problematic. They may end up with um, a, a, a another infection. So C. diff is often comes after antibiotic um, administration because we have a loss of diversity and so it can grow and flourish. Um, and then there was a, a one really interesting study that came out last year that looked at some of the, you know, comparing interventions after antibiotic administration. What's the best thing to do? Do we want to take a probiotic? Do we want to just do nothing and get back to normal? Or do we want to do an autologous fecal transplant? So we take 
our own fecal sample from before the antibiotic when we had, you know, healthy microbiota and then take that um, during or after administration of the antibiotic to help uh, sort of replenish those native microbes. And interestingly, they found that the most rapid um, uh, reestablishment of the microbiota came from the people who did the autologous fecal transplant, which makes sense because those are your, that's your personal sort of entourage of microbes. They have adapted to your gut and to your lifestyle. And if you take those guys and put them back into their native environment and go back to your normal way of living, then they probably would thrive. Uh, second best was doing nothing. Just going back to your normal lifestyle and diet, um, probably eating, you know, microbe accessible carbohydrates. Um, it took them a couple weeks to get back to baseline, whereas with the autologous fecal transplant, I want to say it was within a couple days. Now, the people who took the uh, probiotic supplement, it was a lactobacillus-containing probiotic supplement, they actually experienced what the authors considered to be a form of dysbiosis because although they did see fecal enrichment of the, uh, uh, of the lactobacilli, um, they didn't see those, they didn't see a rebound of the native microbiome. It was almost as though the lactobacilli were perhaps outcompeting some of the other microbes that were at a lower level after administration of the antibiotic. But there, um, there was another study that came out also that year that looked at some individuals actually experiencing what they consider to be probiotic resistance. So they ingested probiotics, but they didn't take. So they actually just went in one end and out the other. And they uh, looked at that, that cor seemed to correlate with diversity of the cecum, um, which is where the small intestine meets the large intestine. It's sort of the hotbed of uh, bacterial proliferation. And so perhaps, you know, if you have a diverse microbiome and you kind of get back to normal after you take your antibiotics, taking a probiotic might not actually do anything at all um, if you already have sort of a, a robust uh, microbial profile. So again, it's really going to be person-specific, and we don't have enough data, I think, in either direction to say with certainty one thing will happen after, after antibiotics. I gotcha. And so I'm glad in the answer to that question, you mentioned fecal transplants as well, because <laughs> that's my other question. Yeah. Um, so I think that people just, just from the name alone find the general idea distasteful. Um, but there's some yes. pretty wild rodent research on fecal transplants, especially in terms of mm -hmm. its possible abilities to treat obesity and other related uh, health issues. Is there similar research to that mm -hmm. in humans? Um, what is it found? And just how would a fecal transplant be accomplished for the people listening? Um, so sadly, we, we actually have, there are some small uh, pilot studies administering fecal transplants for the treatment of obesity. And thus far, it looks like they may see some improvements in metabolic markers but no actual improvement in obesity. So this is in contrast to rodent data. In rodents, we can pretty reliably uh, induce obesity with a fecal transplant, 
or we can um, go in the other direction and we can actually make mice pretty resistant to obesity if we raise them germ-free or, or um, with specific strains of bacteria. But that does not appear to be the case in humans. So thus far, fecal transplant doesn't look like it's going to be an effective intervention um, for obesity or obesity-related diseases. Um, and they've looked at fecal transplants and other things too, like mood disorders. Um, and again, it's really not promising there. The most effective um, application of fecal transplants would be for treatment of C. diff. Uh, it's really thus far the most effective treatment for C. diff. So fecal transplants can be done um, in a couple different ways. So they can actually encapsulate the, the fecal sample from a healthy donor. Um, they process it, they screen it to make sure that there aren't any pathogens hanging out in there that could potentially be problematic. Um, and then an individual could ingest those. They can also do it in the form of an enema. Um, the potential issue with the enema is that it might not get um, far enough up the gastrointestinal tract. But again, since the majority of our uh, microbiome is hanging out in the colon, um, in the large intestine, especially distally, that might still be okay, even if it doesn't get, you know, way far up in there. Um, so yeah, either way, um, and they usually are going to, you know, ask for uh, a donor who might know the person. Sometimes people are a little bit more comfortable with that. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, the, I think in the U.S., um, testing has been, you know, clinical testing has been um, at least put on hold because they did recently have a death um, due to fecal transplant. There was a person who was immunocompromised and they received a sample that had, a, I think, a pathogenic E. coli and they ended up passing away from that, unfortunately. So there are definitely risks to fecal transplants, really not something that people want to do in their own home, not even an autologous fecal transplant. Um, but, you know, there are potentially some interesting applications for it. Makes sense to me. Please don't. I've heard of uh, anecdotally a one gastroenterolo one gastroenterologist who actually did make their own little fecal transplant slurry um, in their home. So. Ooh. Oh my god. <laughs> don't reuse that blender. <laughs> oh, that's so gross. No, I I, I was following <laughs> along this line of Some research. Some people have weird hobbies. <laughs> they, they sure do. I was following this line of research and, you know, I was really excited about it. thought it had a lot of promise and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the suspension of all those ongoing trials was such a, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's horrible that somebody lost their life. It's, it's horrible that they had to suspend these trials because it was looking so promising at the time. So yeah. unfortunately it looks like we're going to have to wait and see if they can, imp can implement more safety measures before those resume. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, um, you know, I, I, and I think, you know, when they were using them in the C. diff trials, like it was even unethical for them not to treat the people who to, who were in the control group. Like it was that effective and within just a couple of days, I mean, almost instantaneous. So even if that is the only application, I think that's still really exciting because, you know, that's a severe, that's a, one of the most common hospital uh, associated infections and I know actually a couple people who've had C. diff um, and so, so dangerous, especially for elderly individuals. So like, yeah, even if we're not going to be able to, you know, quote unquote, like, you know, treat or cure or prevent obesity with it, I still think that it's worthwhile to continue on with, you know, treatment for C. diff. 
Definitely. Now, Gabrielle, we want to be very respectful of your time. Um, we've had you mm-hmm. for about an hour already. And throughout that hour, I mean, this was a action-packed interview. Lots of questions, lots of really interesting answers. Um, a lot of times we're just sitting here twiddling our thumbs going like, so how's your bench <laughs> feeling these days? But this was uh, this was a whirlwind. So because we've covered so much, I think it'd be beneficial before we wrap things up to have a bit of a summary. You know, we talked a little mm-hmm. bit about... Um, fiber, meat and protein, artificial sweeteners. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about mm-hmm. some sugar alcohols are fermentable and have some positive impacts, but that, that doesn't mean that every uh, fermentable food is going to have an impact. Can you, right. and, and what was even more interesting is when we started out the interview, you had a somewhat pessimistic comment about probiotic supplements, but then some kind of less pessimistic stuff later on <laughs> with, with certain contexts, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So. Yep. I think it'd be really helpful to have a little bit of a summary statement to wrap it up of if someone is in, is interested in mm-hmm. doing everything in their power to support, you know, a good quote unquote healthy microbiome, what can they actually do and what might they want mm-hmm. to actually avoid? Yeah. So I would say when we're looking at lifestyle interventions, we would start with diet. Make sure that they're eating a diet that is high in microbe accessible carbohydrates. Generally speaking, those are fibers from whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and legumes. So that's one of the dietary uh, aspects. Physical activity is also associated with Uh, diversity and beneficial short-chain fatty acid production. So uh, exercise regularly, not too much. Um, In terms of, you know, when we talked in the beginning about mindset, stress management and sleep management also seem to play a role in, um, you know, helping to maintain a healthy body weight, which is also associated with um, increased uh, or, or sustain microbial diversity and quote unquote gut health. So it's not super sexy, but you know, eat your fruits and vegetables and whole grains, exercise regularly, um, try to find ways to manage and process stress like meditation, spending time with loved ones, um, and you know, trying to, to find happiness day to day. You know, those are the types of things I always say, you know, my PhD research was in nitrates. And I always say, try to Mm -hmm. eat a bunch of nitrates from plants. And if it doesn't Mm -hmm. work, then the side effect is now you have a great diet anyway. You know, you've got a bunch of leafy vegetables. So it sounds like for this, it's like, hey, work out sometimes, not too much, Mm -hmm. eat some healthy plants, try not to be stressed Mm -hmm. all the time. Maybe you have a Mm -hmm. beautiful microbiome after that. But in any case, you're healthy and happy. Yeah, exactly. Like, can we just make these things cool, even if they don't have a huge effect on the microbiome? they're still just really good things to do. Yeah. And, and when it comes to, you know, everybody wants to talk supplements. We talked about probiotics. It sounds mm-hmm. like most people probably don't need one. But if you right. are going to go that route, there are some some certain uh, clinical outcomes that might be altered, but you got to make sure you get the right dose, the right strains, mm-hmm. and a high quality, you know, certified third party certified kind of product. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Now, uh, Gabrielle, if you have the time for it, one question we ask people, um, a lot of uh-huh. people that come on, because you work with some clients, we're always interested when we talk to somebody from the evidence-based perspective. Are there any things uh-huh. you do either in your own training or things you instruct clients to do that are not fully supported by the evidence yet, but you just 
are totally in on it? Like you totally believe in it? Oh, man. Um, That one is tough for me because I try to be like really, really careful about all of my recommendations. Um, I would say probably the most out there thing that I've recommended was, you know, after ruling out all of the basics, I was like, hey, you know, I've seen some interesting stuff on like peppermint oil and oregano oil. Just try those. See if you like them. If not, I won't be offended. Um, but that was it. I can't even say that I like whole wholeheartedly really believed in it. Um, so I'll have to, I'll think about that. If I think about anything weird that I do, I will shoot you guys a message and let you know. Perfect. What were they doing with the oil? Just like a food additive? Yeah, yeah. Just eating it because um, peppermint oil seems to be helpful with like nausea. Um, and that's that's actually from like medical nutrition therapy. They they actually mentioned that. So I still was like, okay, I found this in a textbook. I don't feel so, so bad about it. Um, but, you know, I think to some extent, like everything that we say about the microbiome thus far is like, maybe lacking evidence a little bit. <laughs> so we're all just kind of doing our best. So maybe, you know, if, if I want to be really skeptical and critical of myself, like everything that I say. Yeah, I mean, what are you supposed to do? We're, we're, we're looking at a body of literature that's developing in real time. Yeah, yep, exactly. Awesome. Well, honestly, uh, and Greg can attest to this because he can see the outline. We got through about half of our questions. I had a whole wow. other line of questions all about FODMAPs. One of these days, oh, yeah, one of these days, we're going to have to twist your arm, get you back on the show and ask the other half of the questions. Cause I think we could do a whole additional hour. Um, but, oh, for sure. But we won't put you through that today. We sincerely appreciate <laughs> your time. Now, if our listeners want to stay in touch with you or stay up to date with what you're doing, where can they find you online? Um, yeah, so I have a website that I don't update often enough, but I have a bunch of podcasts there if they want to listen. It's vitaminphdnutrition.com. Um, they can also reach out to me there if they're interested in coaching. Um, I do a little Q&A with them just to determine what type of coaching would be the best fit for them. Um, if they want to check me out on Instagram and Facebook, I'm vitaminphd. If they want to look me up on renaissanceperiodization.com, uh, they can just check out Gabrielle Fondero, RP Strength, put that into Google, and uh, I'll, pop up, I'll pop up there. Perfect. Everybody out there, make sure you stay in touch with Dr. Gabrielle Fondero. She is excellent. Hopefully, we'll be able to get her back on at a later date. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.